You are listening to Reach MD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Matthew Sorrentino, from the section of cardiology, the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine. And with me today is Dr. Eric Prostowski. Dr. Prostowski is the director of the Clinical Electrophysiology Laboratory at St. Vincent Hospital in Indianapolis, Indiana, and the consulting professor of medicine at Duke University Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina. Dr. Prostowski, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be with you. Atrial fibrillation is becoming increasingly more common as the U.S. population grows older, and it can be a very difficult rhythm to treat successfully. So the first question I'd like to ask is, what are the indications to convert atrial fibrillation to normal sinus rhythm? That's a terrific question, and one that is vexing for many clinicians. Mainly, you treat atrial fibrillation to prevent symptoms. So if a patient is totally asymptomatic, and they're in a more elderly age group where it has been studied that remaining in atrial fib with rate control and anticoagulation leads to similar outcomes as maintaining sinus rhythm, then I'm not sure you have to even cardiovert them to sinus rhythm. Now, this is a more aged population. It shouldn't be taken to younger groups of patients, let's say people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, for example, where we really don't have any good comparative studies. So if a person either is symptomatic during their atrial fibrillation or they are a type of patient that you think should be in sinus rhythm for other reasons, then cardioversion is in order. Is there a particular patient type that you think of that you say, yes, this is one I definitely need to convert when they present to you in the office? Yes, another good point. Thank you for bringing it up. I'll give you an example. A patient was sent to me a few months ago who was 18 years old and was left in AFib. AFib started during an operation, and they decided to leave the patient in atrial fibrillation. Now, I think most clinicians would agree that an 18-year-old boy should not have the rest of his life in atrial fib. Now, that may be an extreme example, but my point is this is a person, even with minimal symptoms, in whom atrial fibrillation has never been proved to be a safe rhythm for 30, 40, 50 years. So, Patients like that, where we really don't have a good database, I think sinus rhythm is the preferred therapy. The other example might be someone who comes to you, let's say a 68-year-old woman who has atrial fibrillation, who's under very good rate control and just simply feels lousy. That person requires sinus rhythm, and I think you should get on it as soon as can. Can maintenance of normal sinus rhythm reduce the risk of thromboembolic phenomenon? Well, that's the huge question of the day, because the studies thus far using drugs would say no. But you've got to remember that antiarrhythmic drug therapy, in my experience, and I think this is across the board with other clinicians, very unlikely reduces all episodes of atrial fib. Now, many people have what's called silent AFib, even though they also have overt AFib. So if you stop anticoagulants in someone you think is in sinus rhythm all the time, you might be very embarrassed to see they come back either with the rhythm or, worse yet, a stroke. So I would say in that situation, the answer is no. But if you look at some of the more recent ablation data, where you can really get in many people, if not total cures, almost total cures, by that I mean just an occasional short episode of atrial fib, There is a suggestion that there might be a reduction in stroke, but I put a caution around that because the right trials have not been done to prove that point. But I think if you do something non-pharmacologic to restore sinus rhythm, we may have an answer to your question. For drug therapy, I think if you're at high risk of stroke, you absolutely maintain anticoagulation therapy. 
So let's take the example of a patient who has paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, and every time he or she goes into it, it's very symptomatic, has it two or three times per year, middle-aged person. What's your approach to treating that patient? Well, my initial approach is to try to figure out why. So I think there's some basic things that we all need to do. We need to take a careful history and physical, look for things like thyroid dysfunction, electrolyte abnormalities. The truth is most of the time those things turn out to be negative. You do an echocardiogram to be sure that there's no mechanical reason for this. But after most workups, you'll find out that there's no clear inciting cause. That's true for the vast majority of people with atrial fib. So once you've done that, the next step then is to say, how do I characterize this person for antiarrhythmic drug therapy? And by that, I mean if they're in an age group where there's coronary disease, you must see if there's any present. So a treadmill would be in order. You've already done your echocardiogram, so you'll know their cardiac structure and function. And now you can take a look at all the antiarrhythmic drugs and pick the safe ones to use because the initiation of drug therapy depends more on a safety profile than an efficacy profile because any of the drugs may work for a given patient. And the concept is always to start with the safest drug first. So how would you choose a drug for this patient? We now have a paroxysmal atrial fibrillation patient. Let's say the only thing we find is they're a long-standing hypertensive, little bit of left ventricular hypertrophy, but normal cardiac function and a negative stress test. Do you have a number of options to treat that patient? Yes, we do. That's a good starting point. Well, first of all, let's go back to your initial point of stroke risk. If they have nothing else but hypertension, they come to what we call a CHAD score of 1. If a CHAD score of 1, you can either use aspirin or warfarin with a targeted goal of an INR between 2 and 3. You also want to be sure you have some rate control drugs in there, and so you might approach that. But now let's get back to the central question of which drug would you pick. Well, if they have minimal to no hypertrophy and you've ruled out coronary disease, this person can have several drugs to start with. You can have either flecainide, propafenone, or sotalol would be the initial selections in no particular order. If those drugs don't work, you could go on to ablation or you could go on to drugs such as dofetilide or amiodarone. And in fact, you could try different drugs in a particular class. So for example, you could start with propafenone. If it didn't work, you might go on to sotalol. So those are the drugs with minimal extra cardiac side effects with reasonable efficacy. They're suggested above amiodarone because amiodarone, while it may have better efficacy, has much more toxicity. And if the drug doesn't work, you can always move down the line to amio. If the drug does work, you have efficacy as well as minimal toxicity, and that's what you want for your patient. If you are just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Matt Sorrentino, and I'm speaking with Dr. Eric Prostowski, and we're talking about approaches to treating the patient with atrial fibrillation. You mentioned flecainide as one of your choices in this group of patients. That medication sort of has gotten a bad reputation since the CAST data came out. Are you worried about using that drug in a middle-aged or older-aged person, even if you haven't documented coronary disease? Well, you gave me two choices in the same sentence, so I'll say no and yes. So let's take the the middle-aged patient who has normal stress tests. I'm not worried. But you raise a very important point because 
if we even look at the issue regarding Tim Russert, terrible tragedy that happened to him with a ruptured plaque, we never really know, do we, you or I or other clinicians, if there's, quote, no coronary disease. And in fact, we worry about that. And as people get older, we worry more. So I have my own sort of cutoff point. If I have a patient who is in their 70s, for example, even with no history of coronary disease and even with a negative stress test, it's unlikely I'm going to start them on a drug such as fleconide or propafenone because I know their chances for asymptomatic coronary disease are very reasonable, okay, versus somebody in their 30s or 40s. So I do have my own cutoff point. I can't tell you that there are hard data to support that, but a lot of what we all do in medicine is based on intuition and personal experience. And for me, there are other drugs to pick in that age group, and I tend to back off 1C agents. Now, there are some patients who have very infrequent paroxysms of atrial fibrillation, and I've heard the term pill-in-the-pocket approach. Is that an approach you can use in some of your patients, and how would you do that? Yes, it's a very interesting approach that the Italians absolutely love, and several of them have written a New England Journal paper on it. But please remember, it has to be tried initially under observation. So in people who have infrequent episodes, but ones that tend to last a long time of atrial fib, you can give a drug such as fleconide or propafenone in a bigger than usual dose, and you can do it initially under observation, for example, in an emergency room or hospital, and prove that it works without any downside major side effects or worsening of the arrhythmia. Once you've proved that, then you can give the patient those agents and let them keep them on their person and if they have one or two episodes a year, tell them to rest quietly, take the medicines, and hopefully it'll cause their episode to stop a lot sooner than it would have. And that's called pill-in-the-pocket technique. But again, it must be tried initially under observation to prove efficacy and safety. When would you use amiodarone as your first-line agent? Amiodarone, by me, used initially as first-line in two groups. First of all, heart failure. It's pretty much my agent of choice. While I know you can get away with dofetilide based on the DIAMOND trials, my own bias is amiodarone is safer, and I prefer to use it in heart failure patients. I also use it first in patients who have significant left ventricular hypertrophy, such as a myocardial thickness of at least 1.4 or greater. Now, that is an arbitrary cutoff point. Some people say 1.5 to 1.6, but the reasoning behind that is the following. Amiodarone while has proarrhythmic potentials, in other words, the ability to take somebody who's never had a ventricular arrhythmia and can cause life-threatening torsade de plant, does so in an extremely uncommon percentage of patients, so less than 1% for sure. And in people who have thick ventricles, it's been known for years, they tend to be more proarrhythmic with other agents such as sotalol or things such as propafenone and fleconide. So I would tend to use amiodarone as my initial choice. How would you start amiodarone on a patient with atrial fibrillation? What dose would you start with? Amiodarone is one of the few drugs that we can safely start as an outpatient, even with patients who have heart disease. And various loading doses have been suggested. I personally use, as an outpatient, 600 milligrams a day for a month, cutting it back to 400 milligrams. But I usually see the patient somewhere around that four-week period of time. Prior to starting amiodarone, you have to do several tests for safety monitoring. It's recommended you do a pulmonary function test with a DLCO for diffusion capacity, chest x-ray, liver and thyroid function tests. At a month's time, I usually bring the patient back and check them out. If they're doing fine, I'll reduce the dose. And my goal is to try to get them down to about 200 milligrams per day 
in somewhere around three months, I'll repeat some of my function tests and do an amiodarone level, and then we'll sort of judge the drug doses based on efficacy that the patient is experiencing, plus what their blood levels are. That's where it becomes more of an art than a science. If a patient really needs sinus rhythm quickly, then I will bring him into the hospital and do a fairly aggressive loading, usually at least 1,600 milligrams a day for five to seven days. But I will only do that in hospital. Well, I want to thank Dr. Eric Prostowski, who has been our guest. We have been discussing different approaches to treating atrial fibrillation. I am Dr. Matt Sorrentino. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. Or call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions at 888-MD-XM-157. And thank you for listening.